Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. So day three of the French Open, all the first round matches pretty much are done and dusted, apart from uh, Pauline Parmontier and Veronica Kudamatova, who at 9.33 uh, French time are just taking to court for their first round match. But there are no night sessions at the French Open, no night sessions at all. Uh, it was a little bit warmer today, according to the weather forecast. Was it, Matt and David, any less weird I thought in the first few hours of the day, it was considerably less weird. And it was a little bit more like, you know how much we had that one day at the US Open when suddenly it felt like a grand slam. There was a period for a few hours there where it felt like a grand slam. And I think it was because we had that really good match on the the main court, the Chatrier court with Karolina Pliskova having her work cut out. And simultaneously, I'd got my heart in my mouth about Jennifer Brady because of predictions problems. And, well, that didn't work out so well. Um, But there was lots going on all at the same time. That's the key, isn't it, really, to it feeling like a grand slam. And it it felt like there was energy everywhere. And and there were tweets flying everywhere. And the WhatsApp group was going bonkers. Oh, it was great fun. I mean, kind of, except that all my predictions just, just were a disaster. Did you get grand slam vibes, Matt? I did, yes, but I don't want to talk too much about that when we can talk about David's prediction. <laughs> <laughs> okay, hang on. Predictions plural. How many how many fell by the wayside today? Well, my daily predictions in the newsletter, which we we put out every day, folks. So subscribe if you want to laugh at me some more. Um, you, you can do that in there. Uh, I, I'm zero for three now. And not only that, I, I went for Madison Brengel to, to beat... Uh, Yelena Ostapenko and she lost 6-2-6-1 and Yelena Ostapenko was pictured returning Madison Bringle's serve <laughs> nearly inside the service box um, it was, so that didn't it was go majestic. very well yeah. and uh, what I particularly loved about it is that Yelena Ostapenko's second serve is uh, is not up to much so it's a pretty baller move for her to she's kind of inviting it's kind of a people people in glass houses situation read the second so if I were Madison Brengel I I didn't see much of that much but I would have 
I'd have trolled her right back and stood it even closer to return her second serve. And <laughs> it's, it, it's then where it both would, ended up just volleying. It's where I would imagine you would stand if your opponent said to you, I'm going to do an underarm drop shot serve now. And mm. that's where I would stand to give you an idea. Um, so I kind of thought that Brengel's choppy game would drive Ostapenko to distraction but instead Ostapenko just got a massive fly swatter and knocked her into the middle of next week um and uh, <clears throat> and then the other prediction that went horribly well, wrong well hang on just just while very quickly while we're on Ostapenko we should probably mention the only other time she's ever won a match at Roland Garros she's gone on to win the tournament so maybe Ostapenko should start featuring in your predictions, David. And I really, I really hope she does now go on to win the tournament because that was my favourite stat. Her zero wins at the French Open, zero wins at the French Open, seven wins at the French Open, zero wins at the French Open, zero <laughs> wins at the French Open. I, I, I just loved that stat so much. Yeah, if, if all today is done is ruined that stat, then... I mean, yeah, she, of a party she would feature in my predictions hereafter if I wasn't going to predict that Clara Torson was going to win every match in eternity forever. Uh, oh, she's she's your femme du jour, is she now? Well, now that she's just ruined my entire fortnight by beating Jennifer Brady, despite Brady having two match points and fighting all the way back um, and letting me down... Uh, just look let's let's be serious about Torsen for a minute this is a 17 year old who I must admit I don't think I'd ever seen play tennis before she was a, an Australian Open champion in the juniors in 2019 I, d- I wonder Matt did you do you remember covering her at all back then when you were there because that would have been when you were you were focusing on the juniors but I mean she beat in the final she beat Leila Fernandez the, the promising Canadian but whereas I've seen Fernandez on the circuit I have not seen this young woman play before and i mean i like fernandez but this woman's game is breathtaking in its power off both sides i i I really was struggling to believe what i was seeing yeah me too i i have to be honest i had not seen her play at all i don't think until today this was my introduction to her and i now have very high expectations i think like you david every time we see her play this will unfairly probably will be the standard that we judge her against I mean she said herself this was the best match she's ever played in her life so we probably should temper those expectations a little bit but what (laughs) as you said what an exciting exciting game just force off both wings and sustained force but also in one of the biggest matches of her lives, of her lives, of her life, in a very, in a very tense match, going back and forth, she was so controlled and calm about it. There was one little wobble where she had a couple of match points and let them slip, but she immediately regrouped. And I just, she was just toying with David, Matt. She really was. I mean, <laughs> I, I really felt for you, David, actually, in that sort of half an hour because there was a moment where I think. It looked like Jennifer Brady was going to win and you were saved this prediction featuring in part three of our worst tennis podcast predictions of all time podcast, which I'm sure we will be doing at one at one stage or other in the in the future. And this one will it certainly will be featuring now because, as I said, the way Torsen managed to regroup after briefly letting it slip was, to me, just as impressive as 
the way she played most of the match, kind of just just going for it and not having to cope with nerves. The, the fact that she then did have a little slip actually made it all the more impressive, I think, that she managed to win. And Brady did, did not play badly no, at no. all. It was such, such a high-quality match. So so few points were decided by errors. It yeah. really was high high quality. I, I had a look at the time, side-by-side side stats between the Pliskova match and this one with Brady. And, I mean, in the first set, for instance, Brady hit 10 winners. Not, not, a, bad, not a bad number of winners. And she lost that set. Torsen hit 18 in the same set. And by the end of it, Torsen had hit well over 40 winners and Brady had hit a good 30 something herself and more winners than unforced errors and usually if you do that you pretty much are likely to win uh, and and that's the sort of match we were looking at and it, and what really struck me was some of the other matches we've seen this this week and in at the US Open I've I found and actually it's more this week because of the extended final set I found myself wanting some of these matches to end I wanted that 18-16 match to end with Mute the other day and have a tie break I didn't want this to end even okay I wanted it to end six love to Brady but <laughs> in terms of what I was watching it was so good it was it, it reminded me of that middle of the night match with Brady in Osaka and then the, the one that followed with Azarenka and Serena Williams, just the quality was so it was really uplifting. I didn't. I just wanted it to carry on and on and on. But the fact that Torsen stood up to to this and was still the aggressor, she took everything that Brady had got, and I, I still can't quite believe it how good she was for for somebody of seventeen. Just on that final set point, and whether you wanted a tiebreak or it to go on, I've I've been thinking about this, and it seems another situation where because you've got best of three in the women's and best of five in the men's I actually think what I prefer is probably dependent on that and best of five I really like a tie break especially a 10 point tie break I think I've enjoyed that at the Australian Open the last two years it feels like an exclamation point on the match and we've seen some really good dramatic 10 point tie breaks at the Australian Open and after five sets frankly I'm I'm often ready for the match to end and have this crescendo. But I think it's different when you're just talking about best of three. And I think it's I think it's a shame at the slams, which do have a tie break in best of three, because it almost feels like you're cutting the match short. But here, the fact that they play on felt perfect for best of three. So I think I think I've we've had a couple of years now with these different formats for the final set and I've not been sure how I felt about it and something this tournament has crystallized in my mind and that feels like my definitive position tie break for five sets and continue for best of three sets absolutely I'm aboard of that it feels completely arbitrary that the men's and the women's are on the tie break front treated equally um at slams I mean, I would. I think they should be playing the same format across the board, and therefore the same tiebreak rule should apply across the board. But um, if you're if you're not going to want or allow that to happen, then uh, yeah, absolutely, I'm totally on board for that. Um, so Clara Torson, she's going to win the tournament now, David. Is that what you're? <laughs> is that what you're saying? Well, I've, until I found out it was the best match she's ever played in the whole life. <laughs> yes, yeah, she was, but. Um, I really hope that she can back this up, A, to save me a little bit of humiliation, and B, to to just 
give something to build on. I mean, look, she's so young. There's no, there's no need to go silly about the hype. <laughs> Obviously, I am, but you know, I, I feel it would be great if she could win a couple of matches here now and just just put a bit of a run together um, because it, it's it's already there. The basics of the the, the easy power is so clearly there. And she did did other things well. It'd be it'd be nice to see if she has it in her to to repeat. She is the exact opposite of Caroline Wozniacki as a tennis player, isn't yeah. she? The, the the two kind of the only two famous Danish tennis players, if you can call Clara Torsen uh, famous. David's trying to make her famous. <laughs> um, yeah, she's she's a huge hitter. Movements her weakness. Big forehand. Backhand is the weaker wing. Likes clay. I mean, likes clay, yeah. It could not be more different. Caroline you you came to that match probably two-thirds of the way through, didn't you, Catherine? I, and I know I was then commentating on something else, and I just suddenly noticed you were massively invested in it. <laughs> um, uh, what, yeah. what was it about her that well, you I, liked? Well, I always like seeing a name that I've been aware of in juniors. I'd never seen her play before, but just like I remember... The first time I saw Sitsipas and Felix Auger-Elysim and, and Shapovalov and Coco Goff and I think to a slightly lesser extent, but a little bit, bit with Cece Bellis. I always remember names, significant names from juniors and kind of make a mental note. It'd be interesting to, to see them play. And this was the first time I had seen her play. Um, and I also noted that she had qualified. Um, I almost picked this one for my daily prediction but I got lured into a Sloan Stevens situation <laughs> that was was a creek without a paddle um, <laughs> Daniel Collins is her next opponent oh can we talk about Daniel Collins go for it <laughs> she played Monica Nicolescu today which I mean is a nightmare at the best of times I think uh, but today uh, Monica Nicolescu was well. She was she was very much down in the score, wasn't she? And she was she was in kitchen sink territory, Nicolescu against Danielle Collins, and she throws in the uh, the underarm serve, and it's a uh, perfectly good underarm serve. But Danielle Collins is on it. She rushes up to the service box. She's right there with the return. She hits it. She controls it beautifully. So often the players go long. Um, with a return off a off an underarm serve because they're they're struggling to control their their speed up to the ball and they they get too far underneath it. Um, but beautiful service return winner off an underarm serve and the noise that she released was I mean it was just my spirit in a in a <laughs> vocal vocalization. Can we hear it? Yeah, let's. <laughs> it's so great i know she rubs people up the wrong way she, i'm i'm absolutely certain she would rub rub me up the wrong way if i were her opponent but i just love how unfiltered she is it's like medvedev yesterday saying i was trying to win the point man to to Fuchovic. like yeah it's just own it if you're if you're gonna be that kind of competitor just just own it and embrace it, do, and I, do I find you think that quite alluring. Will, what, I wonder what it'll be like if she tries. Well, she probably will try all that sort of stuff against the seventeen-year-old yeah. Danish girl. She I tries mean, it against everyone. 
Poor girl. So that, that's the thing. It's unfiltered. She doesn't make any compromises on herself for other people on a tennis court. And as much as that is deeply irritating, it's also very impressive, I think. And I think she wins matches because of it. I really do. I think she wins matches that she wouldn't otherwise without being that irritating. <laughs> so Clara Toulson is the next opponent for Danielle Collins. Uh, mental notes to make sure I watch that one. Uh, just going back to my dodgy prediction for today, the reason why you lured me into thinking Sloane Stevens would lose was because that match was, I think, third on court 14, second yeah. on court 14, Um Against uh, Diachenko, wasn't it? Vitalia Diachenko, yeah. And she's not a court 14, crowdless <laughs> French Open player, is she, Sloane Stevens? I think that is, I didn't see any of it, but I think that's quite a statement looking at that scoreline that she was able to do that, you know, in on an outside court in pretty dodgy conditions. You know, we all know what her tennis is capable yeah. of. No, I agree. I, I, I was concerned about that as well. Two and two is a good result for her there. Um, that's the thing, isn't it? She's just she's somebody who needs to play her way into the tournament and and mm-hmm. get get on centre court, uh, and then anything is possible, and and anything needs to be possible given her, I've got her in the semis. <laughs> I think I've got her in the quarters. So I was hedging today. Anyway. She is just a predictions nightmare, Sloane Stevens. Whenever I see her in the draw, I have a sort of crisis of about half an hour deciding whether or not I actually think she will perform what she's capable of of doing at these tournaments. And this tournament, I decided against it. I think I've gone with Petra Martic instead, someone who's just... Someone who's just a bit steadier, and you you just know a little bit more what you're going to get. But if if they were to meet on in, on a given day, and Sloane Stevens was to play her best, I'm sure Sloane Stevens would win. So it just makes it very very difficult. So I try and just generally try and steer clear of having to make Sloane Stevens predictions. <laughs> I still think Sloane Stevens' best tennis is pretty much the best tennis. It's right up there. It's, it's r- right, right up. It's there. right up there. I would you know I'd put. Osaka on a hard court and Andrescu is on a hard court as much as that feels like a slightly distant memory. But yeah, I, I think it is, it's in the conversation. It's just we so rarely see it. But um, yeah, you mentioned, David, the match that opened things up on Chatrier between Karolina Pliskova, the injured second seed, or I say injured, we assumed she was, she was coming into this tournament um, heavily hampered after seeing her in the final of Rome, retiring from that match against Simona Halep, barely able to move, even though Matt couldn't detect any difference between <laughs> that Pliskova and the normal Pliskova. Um, so I think people were maybe expecting, you know, a slightly turbulent performance from Pliskova today. Um, and I suppose just looking at the scoreline, you could think that that was the story of the match. She was playing Maya Sharif, the first Egyptian woman to play in a Grand Slam tournament, having qualified, um, having qualified in Paris, and she did win through Pliskova six seven six two six four. But the story of the match—I didn't see every point of it—but the story of the match was not injured Pliskova, was it? By by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, she didn't even have any strapping on her on her thigh today. Yeah, and she said in her press conference that. It's fine. She said it's not 100%, but it's fine. And 
she kind of did that thing where she said that all tennis players always have little niggles that they're having to deal with. And, you know, we think back to just a few weeks ago, Naomi Osaka won won the US Open with a niggle. So that is certainly something that these players can play through. So I agree that that, that wasn't the story of the match. For me, there were two stories. It was it was Maya Sharif really impressing. I, I thought she was really fun to watch on that Grand Slam stage for the first time. And um, she saved eight set points in the first set and just grabbed it on a tie break. And it was a fascinating contrast because they were just the opposite ends of all of all the spectrums in terms of their emotion on the court Pliskova was kind of lifeless and a bit flat for most of it I know she made this comeback but it wasn't it wasn't exactly stirring it was it was just her being the better player I think ultimately name me a time Matt when you would have described Pliskova as stirring when she cracked her racket onto that <laughs> yes. umpire's but that's kind of what I mean it felt like I'd seen this match before from Pliskova many many times it wasn't it wasn't anything out of the ordinary for her at a Grand Slam and that's why I wouldn't read too much into it in terms of it being a particularly significant result for her I think she's going to have to do quite a lot more to progress deep into this tournament Um, she's just so curious because she will win, she will string points together and look completely unbeatable and then string points together and look like she can't find the court. And I just find her very, very difficult to put my finger on as a as a tennis player and work out how she's actually doing. Um, but she came through and she was very upfront about her level, saying that it wasn't anything anything to write home about. And actually, you know, she was she was not impressed with herself. You know, she's she's very honest like that, Pliskova. So it's always worth, I think, checking her transcript after she's done a press conference in case there's a little gem in there. Someone asked her about her second serve, and she just said, "Next question, please." <laughs> and, and then and then there wasn't a next question that was the end of the press conference um. uh, my, my favorite bit about when she crashed the uh the umpire's chair with a racket in rome a couple of years ago was that when her opponent maria sacchary was standing right next to her and nearly jumped out of her skin <laughs> she had no idea that was about to happen no it was it was like all of plishkovic's sort of the the still waters running deep all of the depths emerged in that one moment and never to be seen again Sharif, maybe it's all just simmering there Sharif is a, is a great story though isn't she just as a, as a human interest story for a start as, as you were saying there Catherine first Egyptian woman in a Grand Slam tournament and I mean that 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 could be in a hugely inspirational story for another generation to follow absolutely I, I hope that that match was um, available on on terrestrial Egyptian TV and, uh, frankly, TV throughout the 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 Arab world. I think that you know there is there is um, a lot of solidarity in that part of the world. I know um, I know Ons Jabeur receives a, a lot of support in when she plays in Dubai, for example. You know, it is it's it's pretty unusual to see um, an Arab man or woman having success on the court. There are a lot of reasons for that. There's not the the infrastructure and the federations in place to provide support for junior tennis players. Um, I I believe in in some parts of those regions, it is particularly dif- difficult for for female athletes to get any kind of any kind of structural support or, you know, any kind of support, really. 
um, to 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 get on the path to turning mm. professional. So I just really hope that that was visible yeah. today to to young girls, young young boys and girls, but in particular young girls because who knows what this will turn into really who knows but she really looked like the real deal didn't she she really looked like a proper professional yeah. tennis player that belonged on that stage she didn't look great, 172 great athlete in the world, she was anyway. not cowed by the occasion no. as you say Matt those set points saved she was she was really something today um, and I hope I hope we do see her again. And I think she'll be especially good on clay. She's got a she really rips her forehand with loads and loads of top spin. It's one of those where you think's going out and it dips in at the last minute. And that was yet another contrast with Pliskova in this match as well. And it it, it just made for a really good watch, I thought. And um, yeah, she she really felt and performed like she belonged on that court. And I was also reading that she's received quite a lot of support from Mo Salah, who has, who has kind of oh, wow. reached out and, sh- and kind of tried to use, you know, the huge platform that he's got to kind of spread the word about her. And I don't know whether they've actually spoken, but I think she's really appreciated that. And um, that I think bodes well for getting, as you said, Catherine getting that visibility of mm. what she's achieved just by qualifying and playing in the first round of this main draw. It's a big deal. Oh, that's, that's so heartwarming. One of the players as well who got the ITF grant recently announced for the Grand Slam um, from the Grand Slam fund. And so, you know, I think it's 20,000 or something like that. So that, that makes a big difference. Elsewhere in the women's tournament today, Sophia Kennan was really on the ropes, wasn't she? That could have been that could have been game over for uh, for Sophia Kennan against Samsonova, El Ludmilla Samsonova, hundred twenty five in the world. Kennan's been pretty honest, hasn't she, since the tour's resumption, even in New York, about the fact that she's. She's not really feeling it. Um, and it looks like she's struggling with it a bit, actually. Yeah. You know, the yeah, whole, and the I'm whole sure thing. It's difficult for her to... She hasn't got a kind of control sample to know how much of that is about being Grand Slam champion and playing with everything that comes with that. How much is, of it is about the pandemic? How much of it is about there being no crowds and everything being weird? How much of it is the conditions being being different? She... I can imagine her head must be... At, a bit of a jumble at the yeah. moment and just her life changed immeasurably at the same time the world changed beyond recognition yeah, i mean what a what a time for sophia kennan i was impressed that she fought through that today but um she's an interesting she's an interesting case study well at, at, the, the, at the end of it she said i won it was ugly but it doesn't matter if it's ugly it was almost, it was almost like listening to brad gilbert talking about winning tennis <laughs> matches um but i i, I don't know sophia kennan i haven't heard her talk enough to to fully feel sure about this but but i suspect there may be a little bit of the angelique curb is about the way she's feeling right now in the aftermath of having one big as you said her life has has changed but i also think her perception of her life having changed and her position in the game is even bigger than maybe it really is and i think she has this perception that all eyes are on her in a way that actually they're not really in in when you you know when we're at these tournaments she is a grand slam champion she's in the draw but she's not the feature of attention but 
the way she was talking in her mind, it seems that that's what she's feeling. And that can be itself problematic. And I think it, it's also it's exacerbated by the fact that she's so desperate to win. She's so desperate to succeed. I mean, this is not a player who won a Grand Slam and thought, right, that's great. I'll have a lovely life now. And if I do well, great. If not, not to worry. She's driven and she only knows one way, 100% full throttle all the time, try and win. And if I don't win, I'm not going to be happy. And I'm, I just wonder whether that balance is probably quite hard to strike for her. You know, it's a, learn, it's a learning process because a bit like the Ostapenko win, it came out of the blue, really. Uh, and, and I think unlike with, with a dominant team who's, who's just methodically made his way into the final and got closer in the next final and closer in the next final, then won one, and he's kind of got used to it as he's gone along. When you win out of the blue like that, it's you're not really ready, are you? Yeah, you're right. It's it's interesting. I don't I don't think actually externally us lot and and tennis pundits and observers and watches watches have adjusted our expectations of Sophia Kennan as much as she she thinks it. I mean, I, I looked at that today and thought, oh, she, she, you know, she she could lose. I, I I know nothing about Samsonova. I didn't know her first name until you know two and a half minutes ago. But I thought she could lose that today, and that wouldn't be a bit like Von Drusheva yesterday. We would mention it, but it wouldn't be wouldn't be our lead story. But I think I get the impression exactly as you said, David. Maybe in her mind, she thinks that would be kind of seismic. You know, Australian Open champion. And I guess there are so many kind of templates of of players that have had that big success and failed to failed to live up to it. You know, Ostapenko, as you say, is the most obvious one. Although, as we've established, she's definitely going to go on and win the title again this year. <laughs> um, and and again, as, as you say, I'm just repackaging all the brilliant analysis you've just done but she doesn't want to be that I think she's so desperate not to be that flash in the pan that player that people go oh yeah do you remember that weird time when Sophia Kennan won a Grand Slam that was weird wasn't it she doesn't want to be Thomas Johansson um, it was alright think... to be Thomas Janssen because he did it, you know, when he was of good age in a way. He was, and it was, and yeah. it was out of the blue. I think blue Thomas and... Johansson is absolutely fine being Thomas yeah. Johansson, but Sophia Kennan wouldn't be. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is all very interesting though because I do agree that we're not, you know, we haven't got these sky high expectations of Sophia Kennan that we think we might have as someone who's just become a Grand Slam champion. But the very fact that we're having this discussion now does show that something has changed because last year we wouldn't be talking about a round one win at the French Open for Sophia Kennan. Mm. So mm. there definitely it, has course, been yeah, a shift. Of course it's changed. But, it, yeah. but I think you're right that it's, it's, it's bigger in her mind than it is in reality, I think. I mean, there has been a change, mm. but just not, not a huge one. But also, I think it's probably the change I expected she felt sustainable to me after the Australian Open. I, I, I thought she wouldn't be a flash in the pan, but I also didn't expect her to win multiple, multiple Grand Slams over the next few years. I thought she would be someone who would compete and contend and yeah. mm. kind of make mm. the most of what she's got. And I, I still believe she will do that. That's why her six love, six love loss to Azarenka mm. the other week was so jarring because this mm. is a player who's always there. You know, she gives you a hard day. If you, you you might win, but you know you've been in a battle. Well, so that was very very jarring. 
last couple of bits of business from the women's tournament today. Heather Watson lost out to Matt's uh, semi-finalist, Fiona Farrow. Quarter-finalist. Um, <laughs> oh, sorry. Quarter-finalist, <laughs> Fiona Farrow. I've already Farrow. gone big. Don't... Uh... It, had, uh, it had passed me by a bit that uh, Fiona Farrow had won Palermo. That's the um, only so tournament maybe, she's played. Maybe that's not as as outlandish as I thought. I th- Heather Watson played well today, and I felt I felt sorry for her that she was the last of the Brits to go, mm. and so it was, you know she she was the <laughs> the final uh, nail in the the British hopes coffin, and that's not her fault because actually I thought she she. She played about as well as any of them did in their first round exits, and that was a, a tough task for her today. But she was she was she was just out outplayed when it when it mattered. Yeah, and it meant that she got all the questions about what does this mean for British tennis, and <laughs> have we moved on, and are we in crisis, and all that kind of thing. She's not the best person. It's not really, for, I can understand why those went to her for obvious reasons, but she's you know she's. She's not responsible for British tennis and she doesn't want to be and she doesn't... I, I don't think she's the best person to talk about that kind of bigger picture stuff. Um, not sure who is. Um, it's the worst... First time since 2013 there have been no Brits into round two at the French Open, which actually... Isn't that long isn't ago? That it, no, no. And, no. And, also, and there were some really tough draws. It, yeah, I don't find mm. it particularly significant in terms of these losses no. as being significant or signifying anything because all of them, apart from Cameron Norrie, which when he's two sets to one up against the guy 150 in the world, I think he should have won. Um, and I, I know that sounds harsh, but I do think he should have won on paper. All of the others, I think, I kind of feel like, well, yeah, that could that could happen. Uh, they could lose that. Uh, Murray against yeah. Vavrinka, Contra against Goff, Evans against Nishikuri, etc. Um, the the wider conversation as to where British tennis is right now, I just don't think is reflected necessarily in these particular results. Agreed. Agreed. Now the last um, the last discussion point I wanted to raise that uh, from the from the women's tournament today involved Christina Medenovic and Laura Siegmund who were playing on on Chatrier. Um and Medenovic was leading I think with a break in the in the opening set uh, and there was an incident uh, where Medenovic hit a short ball a drop shot I think Siegmund ran for it. And there was quite a clear double bounce, and I say I say that reluctantly. On the replay, it was very very clear. I often find double bounces extremely hard to pick up when when I'm in a studio or something watching it, and everyone around me is certain. I often think, "Oh my god, what are you eating more carrots than me or something? Are my eyes worse than I <laughs> than I realise?" Because I I find them very hard. But on the replay, it was extremely clear. It, it it's I don't think it's ever that clear in real time. So I. I I cut the umpire some slack, um, but it was certainly clear to Medenovic. Uh, it wasn't called, incidentally, and Siegmund won the point. And Medenovic, would would it be fair to say she capitulated? Well, she was five one point up, on? five one up, and she lost the next six games. Now, and she had set set points, I think, as well in that set. Yeah, I mean, it was it was kind of a perfect storm of events going against Mladenovic because yeah as you said this happened at 5-1 I think it happened on set point actually so had it been called Mladenovic would have won the set but 
she did then compose herself and get in a position to win six more set points. She had six more set points after that. So there was ample opportunity for her to win the set. But yes, it did. It did sort of go downhill from that moment. And she ended up losing in straight sets. And it's the second slam in a row. This is this has happened for Mladenovic in terms of, you know, a, a, a capitulation. And she, she, I'm sure, would point to extraneous circumstances on both occasions. Today, you know, she clearly felt very wronged. And look, she was wronged um, by that that double bounds call and and in New York she she felt mistreated by the handling of of being one of the Benoit pair 11 but you know (laughs) people are dealing with stuff all the time aren't they on the court off the court people deal with stuff and part of being a tennis player is not losing six games in a row when Mm. when stuff happens I I certainly wouldn't look at that point and think she has any reason to think that that turned the match or or that it should have turned the match. Um, Should Siegmund have held her hands up? Would Siegmund have known? Here's the thing. I I, I don't know that the answer to that, because I think players, she, she lunged at the ball. She tried to get it and she's fully outstretched arm. I don't know is the honest answer. A couple of the people that I was commentating with on the radio said absolutely she knew. Now, I, I, I can only take their word for that. But I remember cricket pundits used to say that about getting a nick when you've edged it. You always mm. know, you always know. And then Snicko got introduced and it turned out you don't always know. Because right. you only know when you know. If you don't know when you don't know. My feeling is... I sound like Donald Rumsfeld, don't I? <laughs> My feeling is that if you believe you touched the or, or you knocked the ball into the ground or, or, or it was a double bounce, that you should own up for it. Absolutely, one hundred percent. That is how I view it. Uh, and we we have the the James Blake memories from the Olympics relived in two thousand eight when he's playing Fernando Gonzalez and he hits the ball and Gonzalez clips it and Gonzalez admitted in our interview that he clipped it, but he didn't own up to it because stuff had happened in the match and he wasn't prepared to hold his hands up. And I think that was wrong. And I understand why James Blake, 12 years on, is still angry about it. Um, Other people I speak to say, well, you know, it's up to the umpire to call these things, not a player. Um, And if you give give them one, they might, the one you get back, maybe nothing like as important a time, etc. Or I just feel that if Sigmund did know, then I, I think she's in the wrong. She said the reason she didn't call it was that if she'd then watched the replay and found that it wasn't a double bounce and she'd called it on herself, she would be so annoyed at herself for having called it. Now, I think when we discussed the James Blake and Fernando Gonzalez incident on that Olympics Relived episode, we we kind of all said the exact opposite to that, that we would call it because... If we saw the replay and it was a double bounce and we hadn't called it on ourselves, we wouldn't we would feel so guilty about kind of taking that point. But perhaps that's something that I just can't relate to, having never been in such a high stakes situation like that. And, you know, it's I don't want to get into some kind of big discussion about morality or whatever, but it should be the same in all situations. It should be the same playing in the park as playing on Chatrier. You should just do what you feel is right in that situation. But I can imagine that 
the circumstances do come into it. So, And I also don't think Sigmund is alone. I mean, I think Kiki Milenovic herself said most players wouldn't have called that because you can't, you probably can't be completely 100% sure. Another feature of that situation is that you kind of have to stand by the call, the decision you make in the moment. You never see a player sort of fail to own up to it in that split second that they have to make the decision. And then after 10, 15 seconds, turn around and go, actually, I've thought about it. I did touch it. I knew all along, but I've just weighed it all up in my mind. Have the point. That doesn't happen. Whatever your instinctive split second decision is, you <laughs> you have to double down on it and commit to it. Um, so it might be that, you know, Laura Siegmund at all other moments of the day besides that split second would have done the right thing. But in the heat of that moment, um, didn't do the right thing. David's not having any of it. Well, He's t- making I'm, a face of all me. All I can like, say is the – I think you're right about the doubling down in the moment thing, yes. Uh, the, the the ex-players that I speak to say that Laura Siegmund is somebody who's who's scrapped for a career. She's had to. She's been terribly unlucky with injuries. She's mm. managed to make a career. And frankly, if it means pushing the limits, including things like this, she will do it. That's that's what I'm told. I I I, I can only go with that. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. That match was uh, second on the Philippe Chatrier court and it was followed by Novak Djokovic against Mikhail Immer. Uh, of Sweden and blink and you'd have missed it because Djokovic was, would it be too far to say sublime today? No, it wouldn't. He he was imperious. imperious. The first set, he won the first set six love after 20 minutes. And it was like 
He could predict every shot coming his way, and he had the perfect antidote to every one of them. Immer is a nice player, but he's quite similar to Djokovic in terms of stroke production and and what he's trying to achieve. He's just nowhere near as good for a start. I also think he was pretty overwhelmed, but a bit bit nervous and his opponent opponent was hurting him i was pretty disappointed the way Immer just kept failing to run after the ball for, because Djokovic was was hitting drop shot after drop shot he hit well over 20 drop shots in the match and it was an, a measure of just how confident he felt how it was a good tactic in the match for the most part uh, he, he was experimenting i thought uh, he, he looked a totally different player to the man that we saw in Rome, for instance, when he said he won that title without playing that well. Um, the, these conditions look like they suit him down to the ground. He was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, could, couldn't possibly have looked more comfortable. I know that Emma it was a, a dream opponent for him in many ways, but but still, I think to look that good, so often you see Djokovic go through go through the gears and and sometimes look a bit scratchy in the opening rounds because he doesn't need to be any any better than scratchy um and it felt like a statement today yeah. it, it a, felt a, a statement bit more like... to Nadal and a statement to Dominic Thiem yeah it felt like four years ago when when he was coming out and he was dropping 6-1 sets on Nadal and Murray and Federer in the first sets you know and and he was just all business today except that he was playing these drop shots but he was toying with Immer you know that he was taking his best stuff and either rifling a winner down the line or or hitting a drop shot lob combo and there was just the one highlight moment where Immer hit one of the best through the leg shots that we've seen in a long while um, and he has that memory to take with him but that's basically about it it's always a very stark thing when a professional tennis player is struggling to even win games against another professional tennis player it's sort of just a measure of the of the disparity and the difference between them and Immo is a a brilliant brilliant tennis player and he wasn't close to know about Djokovic today and it's, it's kind of scary how how dominant these top players can be when they play like that and um, I agree it seemed like the perfect conditions for Djokovic it was indoors right it was under the roof yeah and and I do think these Generally, these cold, damp conditions are quite good for Djokovic. People are comparing this French Open. If they're looking for a French Open, it's the 2016 one that they're comparing it to, which was very wet, and that was the one Djokovic won. Um, the only slight caveat I would put is if it gets windy. We do know that Djokovic doesn't particularly like the wind, so I th- I think he would hope that the wind stays down, and if it does, then it looks like these conditions are going to suit him. Elsewhere in the men's tournament, Denis Shapovalov won. He had a bit of a wobble against Gilles Simon, but basically I think it was very good today. We had the first ever victories from two sets to love down for both Andrei Rublev and Stefanos Tsitsipas. Rublev was against Sam Querrey on the Simon Mathieu court, 6-7, and Sitsipas was on Suzanne Longlen, uh, 4-6-2-6-6-1-6-4-6-4. It's a big moment, I think, when a player comes comes back from from two sets to love down for the I agree. for the first time. And I think for I mean 
it's quite different for each of them. I think for Rublev, it's kind of the last thing he wanted to be taken to five sets, given that he was playing the final in Hamburg a couple of days ago. And yes, he's on this incredible run and must be feeling just brimful of confidence. But he he didn't need to be playing five sets against Sam Querrey today. For Sitapas, I feel like winning from a losing position perhaps erases just a little bit of the baggage he was accumulating from losing from winning positions, mm. maybe. Yeah, and you know, I'm not sure that a player can win a Grand Slam unless they've managed at some point in their career to come back from two sets to love down and know what that feels like, that sort of adversity. Because I don't think you ever win your first Grand Slam without having some adversity along the, the two-week journey. And this this may not be this fortnight for them, but in terms of their development for the future, I think this is a really big deal. Because Sitsipas, you you alerted me to it, Catherine. I, I, when I when I was watching the first few games, he was three love up, and I and I'd, I'd stopped paying much attention. I was doing something else, and then the next thing I know, you you messaged and Sitsipas is a, a set and a breakdown, and it's and it's tail spinning away. He's getting time violations he's getting his eyes looked at in a in a a trainer visit and a, a, a medical timeout and and I thought he was go- going out at that point to Jamé Munar um he, he lost that set and he just looked bereft and and went with the the build up of the baggage that you mentioned of the the loss to Chorich at the US Open plus this one to Rublev when he's serving for the match the other the other day I could see how this could end up having become a theme but he dug in and he won. And for Rublev to win against a, a really difficult opponent, a guy with a massive serve and a huge forehand who's two sets to love up against him, again, it would be so easy to just feel a bit sorry for yourself and think, oh, you know, I won the Hamburg tournament. How's this happening? And I'm, and I'm really tired now, you know. And he just didn't allow that to happen to him. And I think this is a really big deal for both of them. Yeah, I would agree. Um I think they could both have done, you know, with winning a bit more easily than this. I, I, I think you're treading such a fine line when you play the week before a slam. And I think fatigue could come into it for both players later on in the tournament. Uh, so I'm not sure it's necessarily great news for their short term prospects in this tournament. But long term, I agree, it's a big, it's a big hurdle to overcome coming back from two sets down. Um and and they were quite different matches. Sitsipas, he's so dramatic on the court. <laughs> he, and yeah. I, I, he just, you are watching someone have an existential crisis. Yeah, and I just think when we're trying to figure out the differences between Sitsipas outside the slams and inside the slams, I just think it's difficult to keep up that very dramatic, very draining on himself, almost stressful body language and demeanor that he's got on the court and I th- I don't know I mean he knows what's best for him I'm sure but I just think does he, he needs are you to, you're, you're uh, sure <laughs> about that <laughs> he knows better than me but I just think he needs to calm down a bit well this is the thing though he spoke so warmly about his dad the other day about how he'd had a week away from him hadn't he and then he, yeah and then he comes back and he's back in Hamburg and it sounds like his heart was singing again because his dad was back in town. It was, I mean, it is lovely, really, in a way. <laughs> but and then his dad's sitting there with his his Stefanos Sitsipas mask is it un- on. 
Is um, it unhealthy? Oh, I'm so opposed to parents <laughs> wearing paraphernalia branded with their children's name and or face. <laughs> okay. Um, He's not the first and I'm sure he won't be the last, no, but it is, I mean, look, it's is crass it, and it's... Is rough. it unhealthy? I, I, just, I just don't know. I mean, I, I, I can't, every time I sort of think, well, he just needs to distance himself a little bit more and get another coach. I, I just don't know. I mean, there are, I've seen other players like Wozniacki had a, every time she tried to get somebody else, she came back to her dad and she, she ended but that's up because, doing really well. As I understand it, her dad never really left the scene. Mm. I don't think it, it, I think there's a lot of instances where it doesn't work where, getting somebody else in but the the parent slash coach is still lurking in the background i think yeah. it would need to be a clean break which I mean, would look, obviously every, send sits a pass into emotional turmoil every player separation is, anxiety every but, player is different so i so I, I i am wary of of putting my own version of what's mm. sensible and what isn't and what's healthy and what isn't on to him um but it does occur to me that when he he played that match and he finished that match. He hadn't got any clue what had just gone on because he did his he did his interview on court, and he's all wide eyed and he's looking around and he can't quite believe what's just <laughs> happened. It's all just amazing. But you know, did I just do that? Um, it's just, I mean, it's I find it endearing as well, and I I felt really quite depressed in the first two sets when he was losing two sets to love. Because I, it's so clear how much it all means to him, and he looked like he he was lost, and he, so that's why I think it's such a big deal that he found his way out. Yeah, he thanked the fans afterwards to uh, <laughs> to sort of demonstrate how how out of it he was. I mean, there was literally about six people in the stadium, um, and and just to say on on his dad, I think I completely agree with you, David. It's 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 an individual case and. You know, who knows, really? But I watched Sitsipas's matches, and I think he's very close to his dad actually causing him a problem on the court. I mean, he got a coaching violation today, and his dad is always talking and offering some kind of instruction or motivation. And I don't know, I, I don't think he's that far away from accumulating coaching violations and and it genuinely causing him a problem in a match. And I don't know, I, I wouldn't want that to be the tipping point of of their relationship. I just kind of hope that they can keep it on, under control before it gets that far. But it just stresses me out every time I watch <laughs> it. I think particularly out. when there's no no crowd because you can just kind of hear it constantly back and forth. It's like a proper soap opera, isn't mm. it? Um, so that way, I mean, I, I, with all due respect to Jaume Munar, who was so impressive today, um, I was so relieved that Sitsipas came back and won it because I'd found those first two sets quite upsetting to watch. Actually, I found it really haunting watching Sitsipas play that way and look that bereft on that court where I had one of the most exhilarating and uplifting tennis watching experiences of my life last year sat alongside Matt watching that um, uh, match between Sitsipas and, and Vavrinka and, and Sitsipas was 50% of why that was one of my favourite ever tennis memories um, and yeah to, it was like I mean it was even 
for this year, it was just too dystopian. It was, it was. Uh, I think I said on the WhatsApp chat, it was like someone had put a dystopian Instagram filter over the scene. Um, the fact that it was on the same court, but it was dark and gloomy, it almost looked foggy. It genuinely looked like a horror movie filter. Whereas <laughs> um, you, you also had that wonderful crowd there that day, didn't you, who were so invested. They they were one of those crowds that just couldn't believe their luck back a year ago. For well, that was me Sitsipas. and Matt. And, yeah. Yeah, and, we weren't allowed to cheer, but we... Thousands well, like speak you. For my, speak for yourself, but I couldn't believe my luck. No. And then, it was and, that good. Whereas we saw one of those bird's eye cameras today on the screen at the end of set two when Sitsipas has just gone two sets love down and you just see this deserted, utterly deserted stadium apart from the two guys in the court and a few officials. And it was, it does, it just reminds you again how far life has changed. Um, so, we, yeah, we're still. Him. We're still struggling. I, th- I mean, I know today was was a bit less weird. Well, well done Tuesday, but we are still struggling and debating and pondering on why it feels so weird in a way that the U.S. Open didn't, and how much that's attributable to time of time of year. I had a had a message this evening from my friend Kay, who dabbles in tennis every now and then. Um, m- mostly to sort of to support me but you know it's passing interest in tennis and she said would any grand slam held in this kind of weather feel equally weird and i didn't i I didn't have i didn't have an instant answer for that i just said i just said i I think the weather is a big feature of why it's weird but i don't know how much it's down to that. It contributes, but it's, it, the place is deserted, really. Okay, there's a thousand fans in every day. Everybody knows there's a pandemic. Everybody sitting around the court is wearing masks. <laughs> but, 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 but a lot of that was, was applicable to the US Open, and it does feel substantially different. I'm going to read out the message that um, that my brother Math sent to our our group that's still called Kiri Optimists. I mean, that's... <laughs> <laughs> Um, there's not even anything to, to be curioptimistic about but anyway curioptimistic about whatsapp spats with karen hatchinov i mean that's a that's a bleak situation if only they were on whatsapp <laughs> oh sorry twitter spats yeah um well maybe they are having whatsapp spats as well uh, he said he was he was obviously pondering on the same issue and he said i'm thinking there is something significant significantly psychologically different about no crowds versus very small crowds at the u.s open it was weird but i've bizarrely felt more of a sense of shared occasion with the tennis watching community all of us invisible behind the cameras and intimacy with the players with a tiny crowd as at the french i feel distanced by the presence of the spectators this is something that's happening somewhere else to other people and the players in our responding to these spectators and the fact that it's such a small crowd makes it feel like an underwhelming event so you basically saying that you've got fomo at this one and you haven't at the other one no because i don't think that i want to be sitting in a mask in eight degrees watching this tennis i'm mm. i'm okay with watching it on the the telly look i'm not saying anything that was just one theory posited yeah, i think it's fascinating uh, Mm. I think it's a really good theory. And I think it's also interesting to compare this to Rome. Yes. Because in, in Rome, we felt the crowds did make a difference and elevated the event. But I 
I think where I come down on that is that the fact that they came in at the end of that tournament and felt like they elevated the most important matches and also the way Italian fans support is is probably a bit different and they're so vocal and mm. and, and they and they made more of a noise than however many of them there were you know it felt like a bigger crowd and this is more dispersed there's more courts they can all mm. go to and it, it's it's very difficult to compare one to the other in in that respect but I can I completely agree that of of all the tournaments we've had this one has felt the weirdest to me maybe Kentucky Kentucky was pretty weird because it was it was first and it was it was you know seeing these absolute stars in Serena Williams and Venus Williams in a you know what oh this what feels weirder like to me than Lexington kind of but this one feels much weirder certainly than the US Open and and Rome I think me. it's going to win us over we're only three days in I think I'm still enjoying it it's still watching watching tennis and talking about it it's still no, but I th- great I, think, but I it's... think there will be a moment where which swings it which changes things okay yeah I think it's coming but I do think, whether it's down to what Matt says or not, I do think that shared experience feeling is missing. I think that's a big part of what feels odd about it to me. With the US Open, there was a sense of, I think maybe because it was so clear what the USTA had had to put on the line and go through just to make this thing happen. There was a feeling of, this is going to be weird, folks, but let's all hunker down and enjoy yeah. it for what it is. Well, they included everybody and told everybody what they were going well, to do exactly. and how they were going to do it. Whereas the French f- Federation almost seemed to have just said, look, we're staging this event, you do what you like. Yeah, and we <laughs> do, you know, and, and there was all that intrigue at the start about you know how they'd made the site COVID-friendly and how they'd made it... Um, an enjoyable experience for for players, even in spite of the restrictions. And and you know when the photos first emerged of the players' areas and the 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 players' boxes and the hospitality suites and stuff, that created a a level of interest and uniqueness um, that didn't make up for what we were missing. But it was something, and and this is missing. I know that um, all of that. I know that. Vasit Pospisil today lost his 19th... Change of pace, okay. (laughs) Lost his 19th out of 20 clay court matches in his entire life. Uh, So this may have something to do with it. But he was asked today about the bubble experience as a comparison. And he said, yeah, it's much worse, at least for the (laughs) players. The hotel, the hotel we're staying at, it's tough. We don't have anything. The US Open, there was a much bigger effort, I felt, from the organisation to make the time in the bubble a little bit more comfortable for the players. That's sure. That's for sure. I mean, I think almost every player I've spoken to was sharing the same opinion. Yeah, there is a very kind of French Open feel of this is what it is, like it or lump it, you're lucky, you're lucky it's happening. <laughs> yes. And I think Shapovalov has said similar about the bubble today, but also said he doesn't want to talk about it until after the tournament. And I almost feel like that's that's one of the things. Like players are, quite rightly, I think, being appreciative of being able to play mm. tennis, but therefore they're kind of maybe slightly holding back in in some of their views about how they actually feel about it. And if they were... You know, if they were absolutely laying into it, we'd have loads to talk about, and it would it, that would kind of be a added layer of interest. Um, but I think maybe it's partly what what Mary was saying about whether or not to have fake crowd noise at the U.S. Open, and I I think Mary was kind of against it because she 
she wanted everything to be as real and as as authentic as possible. And if it's quiet, well, give me quiet then. And so perhaps the US Open was a was a kind of full tennis in a pandemic experience. And the French Open feels a little bit half and half mm. in a way. And it's just not quite it's not quite all in with the mm. bubble and it's not quite all in with the times. And therefore I just feel I don't quite know how to react to it because I don't I don't it doesn't feel like a normal Grand Slam. And yet it also doesn't feel like a completely different Grand Slam mm. in the way that the US Open did. It, it, it's all it's all just messing with my mind and my head a little bit. <laughs> That's why You're in a Stefano Sitsipas type place. <laughs> the thought, let's, just, let's just freak Matt out. Your, uh, your, Matt doesn't need freaking out anymore. Last night's uh, uh, podcast was delayed uh, because Matt in, encountered a sort of supernatural type beast while while trying to edit. It was a very, very traumatic half an hour, 45 minutes. I was I was happy as Larry editing the podcast and suddenly became aware of some movement in my peripheral vision and quickly looked over and honestly saw a spider the size of my hand. I thought it had scurried under my bed and I, I had a decision to make in this moment. Yes, I can probably carry on editing the podcast, knowing there's sort of evil incarnate hiding somewhere in my room but i don't think i'll be able to sleep so i did what i always do in a moment of crisis and message the tennis podcast whatsapp group <laughs> and um said what shall i do about this and Catherine, you were very quick to say deal with the spider immediately so i i took that advice and your second bit of, of advice was obviously to locate it. So I, I did do that and it was under my chest of drawers. This, is, this was not my first rodeo, Matt. <laughs> and I should say the other thing is, you know, we're, we're obviously an animal-loving podcast, an animal-friendly mm. podcast. I have absolutely no qualms whatsoever about killing spiders. <laughs> and I also had to do this silently because I didn't want to wake up my parents. So it was, it was, a, it was a very <laughs> difficult mission I had that, um, yeah. So I sort of so, I, I sort of created a perimeter around the chest of drawers using a lot of ring binders containing my degree and my Wimbledon compendium <laughs> and, and my massive foreign language dictionaries and um, eventually eventually managed to lure it out and kill it and then crack on with the edit. But yeah, it's it a was, death we can all celebrate. <laughs> it was. It, it was a bad evening. Cross, <laughs> <laughs> um, let's cross our fingers and toes that that the same doesn't happen tonight. Spiders are definitely lone rangers. I think there's never there's never others where there's one. Let's go with that. Right then, we better let you go and edit. Um, anything else? I know there's been the um, the kind of breaking maybe-ish news today from John Wertheim about uh, the WTA finals. Um, there is the prospect of them happening. Uh, we'd written off all hope because, well, we've been told the WTA had written off all hope, hadn't we? Steve Simon had said they were kind of vaguely looking at at options after Shenzhen was ruled out as a as a venue, but that it was, I think, highly unlikely was the turn mm. of phrase that he used at the time. Um, but John Wertheim today reporting that they're con- they're looking at 
other potential options for hosting the finals. Uh, Prague is a city that has been mentioned and a decision will be made and announced by the end of the French Open. Um, yeah, and I, I really, really hope it happens. Yeah, well, um, the WTA Tour the, needs it. Need some yeah. needs need some more stuff. I mean, they've obviously been decimated because so much of the calendar that remains was going to be in China, and China have said we are not having any tournaments for the rest, any sporting events for the rest of the year. So um, yeah, fingers crossed. I mean, it's a it's a tough situation they've found themselves in. Many people would say, well, it's their own making, putting all their eggs in that basket. But who can foresee something quite like this? Um, and if they can make something work, I, I mean, if it was Prague, I think that would be a fantastic city for a, a one-off mm. WTA finals. I really do. Yeah, agreed. So we'll keep you posted on that front today. Tomorrow's order of play, uh, Lina Svitolina first up uh, on Chatre against Renata Zarazua of Mexico, Peronkova against Serena Williams, Rafael Nadal against Mackenzie McDonald and then Alexander Zverev and Pierre Huguerbert who returned to action with Nicolas Maou today and there was the most heartwarming uh, little gif of them holding an umbrella today which um, actually made me cry. I might have PMT or something but it actually brought a, a tear to my eye. Stanford Frinka and Dominic Kupfer are on uh, Suzanne Longlen, uh, Jack Sock and Dominic Team. Uh, Samantha Halep against countrywoman Irina Camelia Begu and Caroline Garcia against Alexandra Sasnovich. That is long then. And Mathieu is Azarenka against Schmiedlova. Diego Schwartzman against Giustino. How will he have recovered from his 18-16 against Mute? Benoit Pair against Federico Correa and Coco Goff against M. Trevisan. Who, what does the M stand for? Does anyone know? It really irritates me that the um, French Open website, you have to really delve to get someone's first name. Even if I clicked on the match now, it would only show their their initial. So anyway, M. Trevisan, good luck against uh, Coco Goff tomorrow. <laughs> uh, that's what you've got on day four of the French Open. We'll be back with another daily pod tomorrow. We hope you're enjoying them. And thank you uh, to Cam, our lovely, lovely mascot. If there's anyone out there in the world that hasn't seen Cam's video, sort it out, go and watch it now. And Steve, we, we await Cam content. We'll see you tomorrow. 